First off, thank Pastor Trent for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him today. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's very hard for pastors to relinquish their pulpit. At any point in time, even if they're gone, they would rather be here. So for him to allow me the opportunity, I am very, very appreciative of. A study was done about 10 years ago that said the average person moves approximately 11 times in their life. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not like moving that many times. I don't like moving once or twice or three times. But to move 11 times, that's a lot of moving. Now, we move for various reasons. Sometimes we move by choice. We just want a different house or a different neighborhood. Sometimes we move because, well, maybe it's a job that has moved us to a different region. But there are various reasons that we may move. But one of the things that happens when we begin to move is that we take it as an opportunity to do some cleanup, right? We know that in moving we have to clean out closets or we have to clean out drawers. And we take it as a time. You know what? Now is a great time for us to throw stuff away. It starts out that way every single time. However, it doesn't always end that way, right? It starts out with really, really good intentions. But as the moving date gets closer and closer and closer, what begins to happen? Well, we just say, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to throw it in the box and I'll just take it with us. And then what happens is that box just gets put up in the attic or gets put in storage somewhere. And then we'll just take it with us the next time we move, right? That's typically how that scenario works out. You know, I remember... Uh, not long after Amanda and I got married, we moved to uh, to our first house. And I had boxed up a lot of my old school books. And I said, you know what, I'm going to pull those back out one day and just refresh my memory on everything that I learned. Let's see, I think it was last year, I pulled that box back out for the first time. And had to carry the box because it had disintegrated so much. Never had looked at it since then. You know, Amanda and I have joked that when both of us are dead and gone... And Clayton and Gracie are cleaning out the closets. They're going to say, why in the world did mom and dad hold on to all this junk? This stuff is absolutely useless and of no value. Now, you may or may not be able to relate to either of those stories. But I imagine that each of us holds on to things. I imagine that each of us has held on to some hard feelings over the years. So I've titled this message, It's Moving Day. Because I think all of us... We are at a point in time where if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, that we will recognize that each of us needs to move. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to join me in the book of Luke. Go to halfway through your Bible and hang a right. Um, Luke is one of the four Gospels. Luke chapter 17 is where we're going to be. And I want to say, if you're finding your way there, I want to set the context. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has told his disciples that he is headed to the cross, where he is going to ultimately die. So between Luke chapter 9 and then Luke chapter 19, Jesus is in the journey toward the cross. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is having kind of this dual conversation between the Pharisees and the disciples. And it's kind of going back and forth conversation. Jesus is teaching them through parables. And he's ultimately teaching the Pharisees about humility. Uh, and, and the need 
for them to be humble and not prideful. And that's probably a good lesson for us, but that's not the lesson for today. So when we get to Luke chapter 17, Jesus shifts from talking to the Pharisees to talking to the disciples. So this is what we read in Luke chapter 17, the first six verses. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, and it says this. And he said to his disciples, and this is Jesus talking, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom, through whom they may come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree or sycamine tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. Most gracious God, I just pray that in this time we have together to open your word. I pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would challenge us. Dear God, help us to become more like you every moment of every day. Help us to reflect your glory and help us to make much of your name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verses 1 through verses one and 2 of this chapter, Jesus is talking about the, the dangers of causing a fellow believer to stumble. And he phrases it such that he's talking about these little ones. Now, that can mean young people. But in this particular context, he's actually talking about young believers. People that are new in their faith. And what he's saying is that it is very, very dangerous for us as believers to cause young believers to stumble and to fall. Or if we actually lead them astray. And that is a very important message for us to understand because this message actually sets the foundation for the rest of our time together. You see, young believers look to mature believers and how they should be walking with Christ and how they should be living for Christ and with Christ. And that is important for us to understand that we are to be walking in close fellowship day to day, moment by moment with Christ so that we are showing others what a believer and what a, a young or what a mature Christian is acting like. And when we get to verse 3, Jesus talks about if one of these believers sins against you. Now, some of your man translations may have a footnote there that adds the word to you. And the idea is that there are going to be times when people sin against us. There are going to be times when people are not walking the life that they live for Christ. And there are going to be times where we are going to have to step into that space and confront them. John MacArthur says this. We want to teach the truth and live holy lives. So we take strong position against sin. But that needs to be balanced off because we're dealing in a world of sinners. Each of us are sinners. We are all still fallen creatures. We still sin. We have to hate sin. And at the same time, we have to have an attitude of grace toward the sinner. And so, humble believers do not give offense. But neither do they take offense. Humble believers do not sin against each other. But neither do they hold a grudge when others sin against them. 
We don't lead people into sin, but we do lead them out of sin. Pastor Trent just finished a series on the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? It was titled, Teach Us to Pray. And there's a part in that prayer where it said, Lord, Lord, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, depending on your translation in verse 3, you will see words like, we are to admonish, we are to rebuke, we are to reprove, we are to uh, warn other people when they fall away from Christ. But hear me close on this. It is not for the purpose of embarrassing them. It is not for the purpose of demeaning them. It is not for the purpose of singling them out. The purpose of that confronting them, the purpose of that rebuking them, it gives us very, very, very clear instructions. And that purpose is for what? For repentance. Let that sink in for just a moment. The purpose of us confronting that in other people is to lead them into repentance and to lead them back to Christ. So let me ask this question. Do we as believers and as a body of believers want our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to have close, intimate fellowship with Christ? Absolutely we do. Do we as believers want to have close, intimate fellowship with our other brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely we do. And that should be a resounding yes, because Scripture clearly teaches us that that is what we are to be about. However, there are times where we have to step into that space and rebuke others. Now, that is not an easy task. We have to understand that that is not, we are not doing that to cause conflict. We are not doing that to upset the apple cart, if you will. We are doing that for the sole purpose of leading them into repentance, which in store leads to restoration, which leads to fellowship, and which leads to church unity. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. It's easier to say it. It's very hard to do it. Now, we have a nice church phrase for not doing this, right? It's called sweeping it under the rug. That's exactly right. Because that's easier to do, right? Because if we ignore it, it'll go away. What happens as you sweep dirt into a pile? What happens to that pile? It gets bigger. It gets bigger. So as we sweep it under the rug, as we continue to sweep it under a rug, a big old lump begins to form in the rug. And if we're not careful, we'll trip over that rug. But as we also begin to sweep it under that rug, stuff will begin to ooze out. Have you ever had a pile of dirty laundry that kind of stayed in the basket for a long, long time? Especially if it's a pile that has some sweaty teenage boys that have done stuff in it and some smelly socks. What begins to happen to that after a period of time if it's not addressed? It stinks badly. Well, the same thing happens as we begin to sweep it under the rug. As it begins to kind of creep out, it's going to begin to stink. And it's going to begin to smell bad. And before long, it's going to be out in the open for everybody to see because it has not been addressed as it, as scripture commands us to do. Now, verse three tells us that we are to confront our brother and sister in Christ, to lead them into repentance. And it also tells us that if they repent, what are we to do? We are to forgive them. 
Now, that's pretty exciting stuff right there, right? Is it easy to forgive somebody, though? No, it is so hard to forgive someone. We actually think the confronting them is hard. In actuality, I think the forgiveness is oftentimes much harder than the confronting. Because you see, once we confront them and once they repent, we often feel like the ball is in our court at that point and we have a choice to make. Scripture is very clear with what we are supposed to do. We are to forgive them. But we really can't stop there because verse 4 tells us Christ gives us specific instructions. He says, if they come to us in repentance, not only once a day, but seven times a day, do we just forgive the first time and say, listen, you're a repeat offender. I'm not going to do it anymore. Is that what Christ says? No, Christ says that if they come to us seven times a day, we must forgive them. Let me ask this. Is it a suggestion? No, it is not a suggestion at all. It is a command. We are to forgive them. This verse points out the responsibility to us and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to each other. And we heard a similar uh, command in Matthew chapter 18. Remember when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times do I forgive him? It's 70 times 70. It's a very similar message that Jesus is conveying. Is forgiveness important with Jesus? Absolutely it is. That is why he came. He came to forgive our sins and pay that penalty. And that actually leads to my first point, which I'm sure you're thinking, wow, I wish we finally get there. My point number one is this. Sin causes separation. Sin causes separation. I remember when I first learned to split wood. This was the manual way. This wasn't put a piece of wood in the wood splitter. This was the manual way. I had a five-pound wedge. And I was like, now how in the world is this five-pound wedge going to actually split this piece of wood? But it's amazing what begins to happen as you begin to kind of hammer that wedge into the piece of wood. Now, it does it split the first time? Nope. I wish it did. It'd be a lot less work. But as you begin to hammer it in there, you begin to see the split forming. And then you begin to hear the, the cracking of the wood. And before long, the wood actually separates into two pieces. And that's actually what sin does. Sin, once it begins to kind of enter in, it begins to kind of cause that fracturing to take place. It begins to kind of cause that separation. I've heard Pastor Louis Giglio say this, and you may have heard this as well. Sin doesn't make you a bad person. Sin makes you a dead person. Paul echoes this in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sins. Now, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. We don't really think of ourselves as sinners, quite honestly, because we come to church where we think of ourselves more as good people as opposed to sinners. But each of us, even as believers in Christ, we are sinners. Now, we love... To read verses like this. First John 1 John 1.9. You could probably quote it. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, is how we've learned it traditionally. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is anybody here grateful for a loving and forgiving God? Absolutely. Do we all deserve it? No, not a single one of us. But because of his grace, he has given it to us. We also like verses like Psalm 103.12. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Is anybody here thankful that he removed your sins? Absolutely. We read verses like that and it brings us such joy and it brings us such hope and it brings us such encouragement. Because we recognize how gracious and loving God is. But we also have to read verses like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. In Colossians 3, 12 and 13, it says something very, very similar. And so, as, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, what should we do? Also forgive. Is forgiveness important to God? Absolutely. It is vitally important. Jesus' instructions in Luke chapter 17 are very clear and are very echoed throughout Scripture. But this is a hard task to do. And I would even say it's an impossible task to do. Because people wrong us. People sin against us. We're all sinful people. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 5. Jesus has just given these instructions. Forgive others. It says, the apostles said, increase our faith. Now, a transition begins to happen here. And quite honestly, if we're not paying close attention, we'll miss it. If you notice up in verse 1, it says that Jesus was addressing the disciples. But in verse 5, who is Jesus addressing? The apostles. You see, now we're talking about the twelve. The apostles are the, the, the twelve that Jesus chose to be his closest followers. The one that had knew Jesus most intimately. The one that had seen him do the miracles. The one that had uh, heard his teaching intimately. Jesus is now talking to these twelve. And these twelve said, increase our faith. Now, when I read it, I read it purposefully because that is kind of the tone that we normally read that verse with. Increase our faith. But I almost hear the apostles saying, increase our faith. But let me ask this question. Has Jesus said anything up to this point to bring faith into the conversation? Not at all. All he did was tell them to forgive people. If necessary, seven times a day. The disciples recognized that this was something that they could not do on their own. They knew that it took something much bigger than them in order to do this. So their response was, increase our faith. Now, is there a question mark after the end of that? No, there's not a question mark. This was not a question they were asking Jesus. This was something they were commanding Jesus to do. Increase our 
faith. Now, they didn't ask Jesus to give us faith. They already had faith in who Jesus was. They knew that faith was found in him. But in their mind, they're thinking, well, the faith we have in you is not enough to meet this request you have just said. We need more faith. But Jesus' response to that was something very, very different. Look in verse 6. It says, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry or sycamine tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus shifts their focus from a quantitative view of faith to a qualitative view of faith. He is wanting them to see that it's not how much faith you have, but it is in whom your faith resides. And Jesus is getting ready to teach them something incredibly important. We see in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot do it. Faith is a gift from God to us. So where does this faith come from? Well, we learn in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes from hearing what is told and what is heard comes by the preaching of the message concerning Christ. You see, faith comes from God and it is a gift of grace. Now, Jesus compares faith to this mustard seed. Now, we've heard Jesus teach about mustard seed before. We normally hear it in the context conversation of if you had faith of a mustard seed you could ask this mountain to be moved remember that but here it's a little bit different when jesus tells him if you had faith of a mustard seed is jesus really talking about the mustard seed itself well maybe i don't think so though is jesus talking about the size of the mustard seed well possibly but i'm not sure that that's really what he's pointing to now, a mustard seed is small, right? It's, it's about one to two millimeters in size, and that's very, very, very small. But I think there's something else for us to consider in this analogy of a mustard seed. Because, you see, a mustard seed has the ingredients in it to grow to be a plant over 15 feet tall. So I think what Jesus is saying is contained within this mustard seed is the ingredients, the life, the nutrients that is needed to grow into a very, very, very large tree. And I think Jesus is beginning to point them to what is really taking place here. You know, I've heard it said that it's not that we need to have great faith in God, but it's that we need to have faith in a great God. And I think we miss the point that we need to have more faith instead of actually placing our faith in the one who can do the impossible. And from the disciples' perspective, they feel like this is impossible. Have you ever uttered the statement, I wish I had faith so faith like fill in the name. We'll use Glenn. If your name's Glenn, I'm not really picking on you. But we've heard that statement before. I wish I had faith like Glenn. Or I wish I had the faith of those that are persecuted in other countries. And, and we know what they mean. But if we're not careful, we'll begin to put more focus on Glenn instead of the God that Glenn has faith in. And I think that's an important distinction for us to be very, very 
cognizant of. Because we'll try to imitate everything Glenn does to try to grow our faith. Instead of placing our focus on Christ. But if you'll also notice in verse 6, Jesus said you will say to this mulberry tree. And I think what's happening is they are standing right beside one of these trees. When Jesus is giving this analogy. And this is an interesting choice of um, of object lessons that, that Jesus points out. And that really brings me to my second point. And that is this. Unforgiveness has consequences. Unforgiveness has consequences. You see, this mulberry tree or this sycamine tree was very well known in this particular region of the country or of the world. Now, I want you to listen to these characteristics and see if you can begin to point together and correlate references to this mulberry tree with that of sin, with that of unforgiveness and with that of bitterness. The mulberry tree thrived in dry, barren, arid conditions in conditions that really distance itself from a, a healthy environment. In those dry conditions, the tree would grow to over 30 feet tall. These trees were fast growing and virtually impossible to kill. If you tried to just cut it down or tried to remove it yourself, it would grow right back. Kind of like those weeds in your yard. You know, you can try to kill them, but they just grow right back. So let me ask this question. Is sin like that? If we try to remove it ourselves, what begins to happen? It grows. It comes right back. If we try to, if we try to, to do anything we can, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to keep growing. But here's where Jesus' analogy really begins to kind of take root. These trees had a sophisticated root structure. The roots were said to grow down into the ground 60 to 100 feet. Now, can you imagine trying to uproot a tree that had a 100 foot deep root structure? But it was also said that these roots could survive 600 years. That's a long time for that to survive. Have you ever met someone that is holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness? How does that play itself out year one, year five, year ten, year twenty? Have you ever known people that have literally died in a state of bitterness? And it is very, very, very sad. You see, when Jesus used the mulberry tree as a comparison, he was letting the apostles know that their faith in him was sufficient for overcoming the impossible. Because they literally could not kill this mulberry tree. No matter what they tried to do, it would grow right back. So Jesus is using this faith in him to do the impossible, just like getting rid of that tree and throwing it into the ocean. The uprooting means to get to the very core of the bitterness and totally destroy it. And that leads to my final point. Forgiveness leads to restoration. Forgiveness leads to restoration. Once forgiveness has taken place, restoration, fellowship, and unity will be restored. And it will be not only restored within the body of Christ, but most importantly, it will be restored with Christ. 
John MacArthur said this, Forgiveness demonstrates our relationship with God. Forgiveness is the most godlike act a person can do. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about when you actually forgive someone, you're actually acting like God? After all, we read earlier in this lesson that God forgives. God has forgiven us. Have you gone to God more than one time a day to ask forgiveness? Have you gone to God more than one time an hour to ask for forgiveness? I certainly have. Are you thankful that he doesn't say, nope, you were just here last, last hour. You're going to have to wait a little bit. You need to get in line. That's not how God operates. When we come to God seeking forgiveness, Scripture tells us, we just read it, He is faithful and just to forgive us. You may be wondering, what does this message have to do with moving? Well, here's what it has to do with it. Maybe there's some of us here today where we need to move and ask forgiveness from someone. Maybe we need to move because we need to confront someone who has sinned or who is living in sin. Now, I'll grant you that neither one of those scenarios is an easy conversation to have. You know what? I'll be honest with you. Church can get messy. Church can get really, really messy. But let me assure you of this. Church should be at least, but is a safe place because of the grace of God. You see, when we all are living together as Christ designed, as the body of Christ, living in unity, we are reflecting His glory. And the world will take notice. Now, maybe neither one of those scenarios is a moving that you need to participate in. But maybe the moving that needs to take place today is that you actually need to move toward Christ and seek His forgiveness. You see, Christ left His throne in heaven and came to earth as a perfect baby. Because as we read earlier, that we are all born into sin. And nothing that we can do can solve that problem. Nothing that we can do can remove that sin from us. Just like that mulberry tree comes right back, comes right back, comes right back. Cannot be killed, cannot be destroyed. But when Christ came, He paid the sacrifice and the penalty of sin, which is death. He went to the cross and died a cruel, painful death as the atoning sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice payment for that sin. We don't have to pay that penalty. Christ paid it for us. He demonstrated His power over the grave through His resurrection. He lives today interceding on our behalf with God the Father. But you see, there is something we have to do. And that is we have to place our faith and trust in Him. As Lord and Savior. We have to admit that we are a sinner. Separated from Him by our sin. And we are in need of a Savior. And that is Jesus Christ. 
and placing our faith in Him and believing in who Jesus is and that Jesus paid that penalty on the cross, we can be restored with Him. And we are a child of His at that point in time. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we're going to get it right all the time. But it does mean that we are held securely in His hand. There are two final things about the mulberry tree that you need to know that I think is a direct reflection on the bitterness that sin causes. The first one is this. The mulberry tree is only pollinated by the sting of a wasp. So literally, the only thing that keeps the tree alive is the constant stinging of the wasp. And the last thing is this. It was common knowledge in that time period that the only or the primary use and almost exclusive use of the mulberry tree was for making coffins. So when somebody saw the mulberry tree, they knew that it represented death. So while you may not be able to kill the mulberry tree, the mulberry tree itself literally carried death. And so does sin. You may not be able to kill it, but sin carries death. We read that in Scripture. You know, when we move, the most important things to us, we wrap pretty securely, right? You know, all those glass china wares that you get as wedding presents that you never use, they're important to you, right? You wrap them up really tightly. All those valuable things that we have, we wrap them up tightly. Why? Because we don't want them to break. We don't want them to be destroyed. You see, when we come into a relationship with Christ, when we have accepted Him as Lord and Savior, and we enter into that personal relationship with Christ, He wraps us so tightly by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross that nothing can get to us and destroy us. We are forever held in His hands. We are securely protected forever by Him. And we are not moving alone. We are on this earth before a very, very short period of time. You know, when I pass, there's going to be boxes to throw away. There's going to be closets to clean out. And things will continue on. Time will continue marching forward. Life is too short and the responsibility of sharing the gospel too great to live in a state of bitterness and unforgiveness. The British missionary from the 1800s, C.T. Studd, said this, Only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's not waste our brief moments here on earth living in unforgiveness and bitterness. Let's come together. Let's demonstrate the love of Christ and make much of His name as we serve in unity and share the gospel. Folks, it's moving day. It's time to get moving. Let's pray. Most gracious God, I just thank you for your Holy Spirit. Dear God, I pray that it will convict us. I pray that it will make us uncomfortable if there are issues that we need to resolve. Dear God, I just thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty 
of sin on the cross with his very life. I thank you that a a way was made for redemption and restoration. Dear God, I thank you for bringing those here today that you have brought. You have brought each of them here for a very specific purpose. Dear God, I thank you for convicting me in preparing this message and helping me understand there are areas in my life that I need to get moving in. Dear God, I pray today that we don't leave before moving in the proper directions. For in Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that the Lord has spoke to your heart and has blessed you through this message. If you would like more information about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, please reach out to us at one of the following locations. You can visit us online at chinagrovefbc.com slash salvation or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash chinagrovefbc. Thank you and have a blessed rest of the day.